0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician here at the RCH, and I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Dr. Margie Danson. Thanks, Lexi. So one of the most
1: common questions we get asked as paediatricians is why does my child still wet the bed and what can I do about it? So we're really fortunate today to be joined by Dr Susie Gibb, paediatrician and head of the Continent Service at RCH. Thanks so much for
0: joining us, Susie. Thanks for having me. From the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. All infants and most toddlers have wet nappies or wet the bed. What's normal? When do children grow out of bedwetting?
2: There's a huge range of what's normal and I think that's really important. So some children stop wetting the bed between the ages of two and three but many children don't stop wetting the bed until they're seven and it's still a really common thing with 20% of kids, so it's one in five kids still wet the bed when they're five and that's completely normal.
1: So Susie, why do some children wet even in the same family and others don't?
2: It's it's complicated, yeah. I think. And it's part of the individual differences in all children and the rate at which different things mature as children grow. But children who wet the bed tend to be the kids that find it harder to wake up. Right. They don't wake up easily. And if they don't wake up easily, and they've got a full bladder, then they're going to wet overnight.
1: So very deep sleepers are more likely to wet the bed.
2: Yeah, I, I guess the, one way to understand it is deep sleepers, or just, they may not even be deep sleepers, but they just don't wake easily. So there's a slight difference between those two things, but the kids that don't wake up easily when you walk into their bedroom or when the smoke alarm goes off or when there's a crash in their room, they're the ones that are more likely to wet because they don't wake up when... Their body is signalling that the bladder is full. They need to full. go to the toilet. Yeah. yeah,
1: and is there a genetic component? Do you think this does
2: run in families? Ab- absolutely, it runs in families, and that's really important. And really important for kids to hear that and know that, because sometimes the first time they hear about the fact that maybe their uncle or their cousin or one of their parents wet the bed was when people when people start to worry about their wedding and that's really. It's really reassuring for them to know that these competent adults that they know used to wet their bed as well because the worst thing about bedwetting for kids is the the shame and the embarrassment if they think they're the only ones that wet the bed.
0: Yeah I agree. Why do we treat bedwetting? So if a child doesn't grow out of it or they're late to grow out of it, should we just leave them till they do grow out of it or should we treat?
2: No I think it's really important to understand how much of a problem it is to the child and if they're worried about it we should definitely treat it and and also we need to think about it once children get to the age of seven or eight are we sure that they have just bedwetting and there's nothing else to worry about or is there some reason why they're still wetting and that's when we need to think about going to see the GP, talking about the problem, making sure there isn't anything else underlying that might increase the chances that the child is still wetting. And the common things are if they're constipated, that might make them still wet because there's I guess a simple way of trying to understand that is that if there's lots of poo still in the tummy, that means there's less room for wee in the bladder, so you might actually not be able to hold on to all your wee overnight. And then there's a small group of children with wedding who actually have difficulty storing wee in their bladder. And that might show up with some symptoms in the daytime as well. So they might need to go more often to wee or more urgently to wee. And that's a little bit of a hint that perhaps there's something else that needs looking into and that might need to be managed first before they could become dry at night.
1: Susie, it's interesting what you say about constipation because speaking to parents, when, when we discuss bedwetting, they very often say, oh, my child's not constipated because they go every day. But in fact, when you ask them, their child is straining and finding it difficult to actually do a poo. And so sometimes constipation is not obvious to parents, would you say? They often underestimate that their child might be constipated?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a good concept to think about is constipation doesn't mean necessarily that the poo's hard or that you haven't gone for days, it's that you haven't emptied it all out. That's right. It's actually the poo left behind that is the problem, not the poo that comes out.
0: The truth is, how many of us go and look at our eight-year-old's poo? regularly. I I certainly don't and they're pretty embarrassed about it most of the time. So I think it is
2: important. So that's why a visit to the GP might be important to examine the tummy and that might give you a hint that there is poo left behind. Okay,
0: so if we're thinking about treating bedwetting, go to the GP, rule out constipation, rule out any daytime symptoms. Parents often ask, does my child have an underlying problem with their kidney or bladder? Is there something with the anatomy of how it was formed that's wrong. How often do kids have underlying issues that cause bedwetting alone?
2: Really extremely rarely. Mm-hmm. It's that information about their symptoms that will tell you if they need to have anything else looked into. If the there are no hints of problems during the day, if the examination at the doctor is normal. There's no need for any tests or anything else. That's what tells you it's simple bedwetting.
0: Yeah. yeah, and often the GP will do a urine dipstick test just to rule out a urine infection before starting treatment. But once again, that's probably not common as a cause of bedwetting without other symptoms. So is it just those
1: daytime symptoms you mentioned. I think that, again, also parents talk about kids that are jiggling or or holding and sort of doing the wee dance. Um, Maybe talk a little bit more about those daytime symptoms that you're referring to that that parents might not be sure whether their kids have those or not.
2: Yeah, I think the wee dance is a good good thing to talk about. And, And I think sometimes it's really tricky because there's two reasons for doing the wee dance. One might be that you're just don't want to stop what you're doing and you really just want to hold on and and wait until the right time to go to the toilet but some children do the weed dance because unpredictably out of the blue they suddenly need to go to the toilet and one way to try and figure that out is to work out how long it was since they last weed. If it's ages since they last weed, like three hours, then the wee dance is probably because they just don't want to stop what they're doing, and um, so they're holding on to avoid going to the toilet. But if they went to the toilet an hour ago, and then they're doing the wee dance, that's a bit of a hint, maybe there's yeah. something up.
1: And sometimes they can wet their undies as well because they, you know, are holding on or it comes on so suddenly and so often parents will say, well, actually, I'm changing my child's undies a couple of times a day. Yeah,
2: so that, that, those mm-hmm. things, those are the children who need some other treatment before trying to treat their bedwetting.
1: Yeah, that yeah. makes sense.
0: So Susie, there are quite a lot of myths about bedwetting. One of the most common, um, parents believe their child is lazy and doesn't want to get up overnight, so they just wet the bed. Um, Another myth um, is that it's helpful to lift a child and take them to the toilet and they'll grow out of their bedwetting that way.
2: Can you address some of these? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with the laziness. That I think is just not true. Bedwetting happens when children are deeply asleep. It's an unconscious thing. They don't do it deliberately. And that's really important because we don't want them to feel blamed in any way for wedding. And we need to treat their wedding knowing that they're not doing it on purpose. So they're definitely not lazy. The other thing you mentioned is something that we sometimes call lifting, where parents will get their child up out of bed just before they go to bed, take them to the toilet, and then put them back in bed, hoping that they'll be dry until the morning. Now, that certainly does sometimes work. It will keep the child dry and save the washing, but it doesn't help the child to learn themselves how to wake up overnight. So... It's not a harmful practice and it can be useful in some families with young children, but it doesn't increase the rate of the child growing out of their bedwetting themselves. What
1: about rewarding them, Susie? Like, is it useful to say in the morning, if you're dry, I'll give you a reward or there's some prize or...
2: I don't think so because they're not doing it on purpose, That's you know, right. and, and that just sort of sets them up to fail. And we've already said that shame and embarrassment is the reason that we want to treat children with bedwetting and if you then set them up for trying to achieve a reward that they can't achieve then they feel worse about themselves they're it's their self-esteem that we're trying to preserve by managing the bedwetting if we and can. And often
1: that self-esteem becomes a big issue if they can't have sleepovers at friends' houses, for example, or they can't go on school camp.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, really the commonest kind of trigger for seeking help is when kids get to that age that's where right. it's starting to have a, a social impact on them and they're embarrassed and want to try and do something about it.
0: Okay, so when the child and the family are ready and the child's at the right age and they're ready to try something to help with the bedwetting, what's the first-line treatment in Australia? What do we recommend?
2: So we use bedwetting alarms in Australia as the first-line treatment. Um, There are two kinds of alarms that are available. There's a small, what we call body-worn alarm, which has a little sensor that clips into the underwear and will... um, pick up moisture when there's um, when the child wheezes. that's attached to a little cord that clips onto their t-shirt or pyjama top and sounds an alarm. And those, Susie, those
1: ones are often just bought at the chemist,
2: aren't yeah, they? Yeah, those are, you can purchase um, at a chemist or order them online. Um, various manufacturers make them and they come in different kind of models that have different sound levels and other things, but they are relatively widely like available. Like a personal alarm, if you like. They're called personal alarms sometimes. They are... And, and that's one option. Then the other option is a what we call a pad and bell alarm, where there's um, a, a mat that goes in the bed under a cover sheet that the child doesn't wear thick pyjamas and sleeps on the mat, that mat's attached by a long cord to a alarm which is in a box which is able to be further away from the bed and very loud. One of the advantages of having the pad and bell alarm in my mind is that it's much louder and then easier for the parent or responsible adult to hear as well because we've said that children are sleeping deeply when they wet and the idea of the alarm is to wake them when they wet but they're really deeply asleep and really it can be quite tricky to wake the first few times the alarm goes off so you actually need your parent to come and help you wake so having a louder alarm that a parent can hear from another room might be an advantage and that's really
1: key isn't it that the child wakes to the alarm
2: yeah absolutely fully wakes up so this loud alarm is going off in your house in the middle of the night your first reaction is going to be to try and stop that noise but actually your first reaction has to be to wake your child so they can stop the noise because that we think is the conditioning that the child needs they need to hear that noise to associate that with wedding, and then to bring about an ability to either wake in anticipation that the alarm is going to sound or hold on in anticipation that you don't want that sound to come.
0: Okay so with the alarm what what do parents need to know um To expect in the first few weeks? How long do they use an alarm for? You've mentioned some of the principles
2: of the alarm. So I think parents need to know it's going to be hard work. Mm -hmm. The first couple of weeks are going to be hard. People are going to be having to wake up in the middle of the night and um, help their potentially slightly upset child who has. And of course, it upsets
1: the siblings potentially sleeping in the next room. Yeah.
2: Interestingly, I don't think the siblings wake up very often unless they're a lot older, but younger siblings usually don't wake. What if they're
1: sharing a room? Do you recommend parents move that child?
2: No, no, not usually. I think usually it's okay. The first two weeks is hard though. And so parents and the child need to really want to do it. It has to be the right time for the family, and they need to recognise that this is going to be hard, everyone's going to be a bit tired, a bit grumpy, and it might take at least two weeks before they feel like they're getting anywhere. The first sign that you're getting somewhere, though, will be that the child might wake more easily, might actually wake Halfway through wetting, so the wet patch is smaller, and then you can see that maybe you're getting somewhere.
1: And Susie, do you ask parents to keep a diary when they are using the alarm?
2: Yeah, I think it's useful to keep a diary because that helps you track how you're going. It's also useful useful for the child as well to mm, see to the, see their progress to see their progress because it's hard work for everyone.
0: So yeah. the first two weeks will usually be hard. But then what parents will notice is that the child might wet less often or less amount. And what does success look like? When do the parents know that, yep, we're on the right track here, this is going well?
2: So I think once there starts to be a number of dry nights in the week, you know it's going well and you should keep going. We define success as being dry for two weeks. So So every night. Dry every night for two weeks, then... Pretty sure that that's that's going well and that you're going to be okay. Sometimes at that point, people want to see what can we do to ensure that this hard work has um, been worthwhile and we're going to hopefully get a a response that's long lasting. And sometimes you, in that situation, might do something that's called overlearning, And that means giving the child a drink just before they go to bed to try and really put them to the test. If they've had an extra drink, can they still be dry? And there is some benefit in doing that. But if you give the child an extra drink and they start to wet, stop doing that and just keep going with the alarm. Because if you can get dry for two weeks... That's a cure.
1: So, Susie, how long do you think most people would use an alarm for?
2: Usually about eight weeks. But okay. it's the first two weeks that is hard. Then the most people then have a period in the middle where it gets gradually better with less and less wets. And then by the time you get to the eight-week mark, they've had two good dry weeks. That would be average. Some children are faster and some might need just a tiny bit longer as well.
0: And when do you stop the alarm? So if it's been 4 weeks, the parents don't see any success, no dry nights, no decrease in wetting, would you keep going
2: or would no, you recommend stopping? I would definitely stop at that point. And that and then there's one of two things. Either we just wait, give it 6 months and try again. The child might be older, more motivated, easier to wake. But if you've tried for 4 weeks and are getting absolutely nowhere, then there are kind of second line treatments. So some children can have a medication at night. It's a medication that works to reduce the amount of wee that the body makes overnight and that can keep them dry in many circumstances. It's safe to use. It's a synthetic form of a hormone that our body makes anyway that regulates the amount of we that we make. So it's like we're just boosting that to a slightly higher level and it can be given safely either in the short term for one or two nights for going on a camp or a sleepover or for the child who's really despondent about their wedding, who didn't respond to the alarm but really just needs to be dry for their self-esteem, you can use the medication in the longer term quite safely. The medication is marketed um, under the name of Minarin, but it's um, the scientific name is DDAVP and it comes as a, melt under the tongue tablet. So it's very easy to take. Like a wafer. Like a wafer, doesn't have any taste. It's really easy to take. And the child would take it an hour before they go to bed and not have anything to drink after the tablet until the next morning. So this
0: is medication. You need to go to your doctor, get checked, rule out underlying issues and have tried the alarm in Australia. don't want to out the alarm. They say, oh, look, you know, we, we can't afford to be so tired overnight. Can we just give them the tablet? Is that a possibility?
2: If there is a reason why the alarm is not suitable, then a doctor can prescribe the medication in that situation. So I guess an example might be a child first visits the doctor a week before they're going on a school camp. They're going to be desperate not to wet on the school camp but there's not enough time for alarm therapy to work so in that circumstance where an alarm is not suitable it's possible to prescribe the medication first as a short-term solution but then I would always advise people to then go back and revisit the idea and of And why alarms. is that
1: Susie? Why, why should parents really consider the alarm as the first step?
2: because the alarm is actually potentially curative it actually resolves the problem and is a long lasting solution the medication a bit takes more of the a symptom away yeah. but yeah it's a bandaid once you stop the medication you're just back Wetting where you will started often just come from. back yeah. yeah
0: so with the alarm treatment what percentage of children do get success the first time they use it if if it's done properly and the right time is selected
2: so up to eighty percent of children will become dry with alarm therapy the first time Which they try it. Which is a really big
0: it. number. It's a really successful intervention if yeah. it's done properly. And at I the have right to time. say, as a
1: paediatrician, it's one of the most rewarding things when the child comes back having done their alarm therapy with their diary, often with this huge smile on their face, and they're so proud and and just that feeling of success is really fabulous. It's
2: a treatment that has no downsides really other than the time investment in those first two weeks.
0: And you mentioned the personal alarms you can purchase online or in a chemist. What about the bell and pad alarms? Do parents purchase those? Do they need to go to a hospital? How does
2: it work? So the bell and pad alarms are expensive. So most in most situations, people would go to a clinic or a hospital and hire an alarm like that. Do all patients
0: or children who wet the bed need to see a paediatrician?
2: No, I don't think that they do. Like a, your GP can successfully treat your bed wetting, but I think all children need to see a doctor to rule out those other conditions that we talked about. Before, so I wouldn't advise people just to purchase an alarm and start treatment themselves, themselves. because coming back to what we said before, this is a condition that really affects kids' self-esteem, and unsuccessful treatment is not good for your self-esteem. So, if you haven't identified an underlying problem and you treat with an alarm and the child doesn't improve, then that's another blow to their self-esteem. And
1: in fact, very often we see that and parents come in and you start talking about the alarm and they say, well, we've done that and it didn't work and it's not, you know, it didn't work in my child. But in fact, when you step them through the process, as you have just talked about, then they often do achieve success if it's done kind of properly. So I I really agree. I think actually helping a parent to to really understand the steps is really important.
0: And I think choosing... For the family to choose the right time for them and for the child to be ready and motivated, as you mentioned, is the key. Any other tricks of the trade? Anything that works well for families that we want to share?
2: The most important thing with the alarm is just making sure that everyone's really clear about what they're going to do with the alarm because it is hard work. I think the time spent really planning what you're going to do. You know, before the child goes to bed, you're checking the alarm, you're plugging it in, you're playing the sound so that you're thinking about it. So the child
0: has to be really involved. They're the ones who have to go and turn it off. So they have to know exactly what's happening. Okay, so just to recap, bedwetting's really common in kids and most kids grow out of it. But if your child is seven or eight and they haven't grown out of it and they want to get treatment, it's important to see your GP first. Rule out other conditions like constipation or daytime symptoms and then talk about the alarm system. In Australia, we use alarms first line, unless there's a reason not to. If the alarms don't work or you need another option, there is medication, but you need to get that from your GP. I think that's really useful, Lex. Thank you so much, Susie. Thanks for joining us and talking about bedwetting. Thanks very much for having me, guys. It was great.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform and leave us a review.
0: You can also find additional information about bedwetting through our Kids Health Info webpage. A link will be
2: in our show notes. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.